do not sign anything without legal representation. You will be ripped off, torn apart, and sold down the river. I have been ripped off, sold down the river so many times, you know, nobody can really believe it. And, you know, it's very hard for people to actually really truthfully believe that for this huge film of widows, I got paid a bouquet of flowers because I didn't own anything. Raymond Chandler's letters. Oh, my goodness. Will you have a laugh? He never, ever got a bad review without him answering the bad review with an abusive, disgusting letter. Loved him. Do you ever, do you ever follow his lead and do you ever write to people who say mean things about you or, or give you a bad review of a book? No, but I, I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a great set of fans that, I mean, keep me going all the time. Because truthfully, if I didn't have that warm regard from fans, then I wouldn't bother writing anymore. Welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And our guest today has written over 30 international best-selling novels. She's the creator of the Anna Travis series, Lorraine Page series, Trial and Retribution, Prime Suspect, for which she won awards from BAFTA and Emmy a British Broadcasting and Royal Television Society Award, as well as the 1993 Edgar Allan Poe Award. And he's one of only three screenwriters to have been made an honorary fellow of the British Film Institute. We are, of course, speaking to the wonderful Linda LaPlante about her new book, Buried. And I'm just wondering, Linda, if you've got a sense of deja vu about this. <laughs> well, I could say that, yes. I mean, we've done it before, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, this is the point where we should admit that this is only episode two of our new podcast series and we've already totally messed up uh, by... Well, it wasn't actually our fault. It wasn't was our a, fault, was it? It was a recording technical failure. But even so, um, we're very grateful to Linda for chatting to us again. Or this could just be a ruse and actually we enjoyed hanging out with you so much. We've just like, yep, yeah, sod it, we'll do it again. I've written a new book since then. It wouldn't surprise me, Linda, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> All right, let's um, let's start off with Buried then, which is the book that is out now, which says on the cover, introducing Detective Jack War. But actually, there are some very familiar characters to your readers in this book, aren't there? There's some women that we will know and recognise and love. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like uh, saying goodbye to some of the characters from Widows. I think because of the success of the movie Widows, and then it generated uh, republishing Widow's book and then Widow's Revenge and She's Out. I don't know, to go back into novels that you've written a long, long time ago and indeed the TV, the original TV series was a long time ago. And then to have this generate all these new fans and the movie, um, it was strange. It's like... You know, people kept saying, could Dolly Rawlings come back and be alive? And I said, no, I did kill her off in one book. <laughs> and, you know, after the success of the series, She's Out, one of the executives at ITV was seen running between the desks saying, could we get her out of the grave? You know, the hand coming up, Dolly is alive. And I said, <laughs> no, no, you couldn't. But the ghost of her is so strong and... And the underbelly of Buried, 
they are there, the widows, um, because the introduction of Jack Waugh, a young detective, is that um, he's involved in an uncovering a murder in a cottage where um, a charred victim is found, um, a skeleton of a male is found, but also found in the grate of this cottage are thousands and thousands of burnt banknotes, five and ten pound banknotes. And so that lurches back in some way to the train robbery that the women actually were part of, but were never arrested and never charged. And the bulk of that huge robbery still remains hidden. So there's the link to the widows and the introduction to a character that I really like, you know, Jack War. He's hopeless, a hopeless detective. <laughs> but you can't help but love him. He's a really, really nice guy. Can I just ask about the the female characters in this? You were saying, obviously, there's been a, a resurgence of interest since the movie Widows. But is there a little bit of you as well that kind of wanted to have the last word on that as well? The last word on these characters? Yeah, in a way, yes. Because uh, I just feel that sometimes when you continually carry on with a character they start to get a little bit stale, or the author gets stale, really. Mm. You have to keep an, a, a kind of an energy level up all the time. And for me, that energy comes from writing new storylines and introducing new characters. But at the same time, they were hard to beat, those women that I first created all those years ago, and in particular, Dolly Rawlins. I mean, it's extraordinary. You just say a name today and people go, oh, yeah, oh, Dolly, oh, and they immediately go into her voice. Um, and she's um, a formidable actress too. I think her performance in the series She's Out is astonishing. Mm. Uh, I always say she's one of those rare actresses that when she smiles, she's got about ten of them. You never know which smile... She can be thinking she's going to kill you, but her smile is sweet, sweet, sweet. <laughs> she's a wonderful, very powerful actress. But that's Dolly as well, to a T, isn't it? I mean, I would have thought, is that quite a difficult trick for you to pull off as a writer, is to make her... She has parts of her character that aren't very nice, and yet we still root for her. It was, it was astonishing at the time when Widows first aired you'd have thought that the fans and the people would have actually been behind the younger, the blonde bombshell in it, you know, who was the beauty queen. Um, but no, it was Dolly Rawlins. They used to spray her name across walls. Go for it, Dolly. Um, and also still, a lot of old East End women go, she was the first real East End woman they'd actually seen on the screen. I mean, now with the soap EastEnders, they're all like that, aren't they, eh? <laughs> 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 they're, they're all punch you out and stuff. But she had the added agenda because she was very sophisticated as well. And that was part of her... Uh, I mean, the fans, I've never seen... She was mobbed 
um, absolutely astonishing. And she was then in her mid-40s. This is Anne Mitchell, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful actress. Oh, I love her to death. I still see her regularly. You know we've got another cool. uh, East End Cockney on the podcast right now, Linda. Oh, yeah. You know that Natalie... Don't let, don't let the plum fool you that Natalie was born in, in the Bow Bells. Is that right? Actually, in one of the actual no, Bells. No, I, I wasn't. I'm like, I, oh God, I'm really bad at doing the maths on those kind of things. But my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was born within the sound of the Bow Bells. And um, my mum, I'm obviously very much like my mum, uh, but there's kind of a sort of a running joke in our family that that lineage of my family is, uh, yeah, you don't want to cross them because they are intensely loyal, but they will, like, shoot you down with a word or a phrase. We know exactly how to hurt people in that verbal way if we need to. I'm not saying that we're violent. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a really quite a defining streak, I think, from that particular part of London. But it's very similar because, you know, Liverpool... Mm. I mean, my granny... My God, you didn't want to cross her. <laughs> she was lethal. She was six foot, ice blue eyes and this hooked nose. Mm. And she never, ever got to grips with the traffic. She would just step off the pavement, hold her umbrella up. <laughs> they would have to. And when I was a little girl, my granny lived with us, Gertrude. Um, I never touched a drop to drink, but my God, did she make up for it. Uh, after she was 50, she used to have these crates of guineas. And you never wanted to cross. She was a tigress that would mm. come out. She would fight you to the death, my granny. And uh, she was uh, quite high up in the Conservative Party, the local Conservative Party. <laughs> and uh, she would go to these dinners and things. And she had this black lace gown that she'd wear. And uh, my mother called me out. I'd be about, I don't know, five, six. And she called me into um, my granny's bedroom and said, uh, what's happened to your granny's dress? I said, I don't know. Well, it's full of very large holes, Linda. Have you been cutting sections out of your granny's dress? No, I haven't, no. But it could have been a moth. And these were huge gaping holes. And, of course, they went into my bedroom and found a number of dolls with black lace hats. (laughs) (laughs) And, my God, did I feel the whack of that hand. But Uh, I am the same. You know, I'm the most easygoing person. But you cross me and out comes that Liverpool background. I will. And I I bet you never forget either as well, right? You don't. Never. Like an elephant. Yeah. Elephant memory. Yeah. yeah. So let's get back to Berry. <laughs> Berry. Are you scared now, Phil? Yeah. 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 Uh, do you have a, a bit of this ready to, to read? Now, I don't know where that book... I did have a bit turned down from the last time. <laughs> However, I do not have a bit turned down now. I can fill if you like, because I, I like that you've just taken your book of Berry down from the shelf just underneath your three BAFTAs, is that, Linda? Yes, the fourth is downstairs. I couldn't lift it up, darling. <laughs> uh, yeah, hang on. Oh, yes, I do have it. Oh, how convenient. I've just got the book here. Mm. 
<laughs> Where do we join the story? Where, well, bit you earlier actually... I said then when they go into the uh, charred cottage yeah. uh, and find the skeleton. So it's rather repeating myself, actually. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, here we go. Are you ready? Yeah. We are ready and we're sitting comfortably. Thank you so much. He was suddenly distracted by the contents of the hearth. The water from the fire hose on the floor in this area of the room looked like thin black paint, a result you might expect to get after paper is burned, creating a fine, soluble ash. Further back in the hearth, untouched by the water, altogether were the remnants of what looked like stacks of dry, charred paper. The paper was now nothing more than tiny fragments of its original form, but the volume was confusing. He picked up the longest of four fire pokers and gently nudged the top layer of paper away in the hope of getting to some less burnt samples underneath. He tried not to damage any of the delicate paper. Eventually he spotted a single intact piece, no more than one centimetre in length, showing the instantly recognisable pale blue-green pattern from the bottom left-hand corner of an old five-pound note. He carefully picked up this fragile piece of evidence and placed it into the palm of his hand. It's cash. Dear God, there's stacks and stacks of cash. It's all cash. Oh, you couldn't put that book down. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want to? You know, it's very interesting because when I was, you know, producing... You get actors to come in and you've given them sheets of pages to read and to come in for the audition. And I've always, you know, when I do these kind of sessions with actors and writers, I always tell them that it is imperative when you're given pages to come in for an audition, you know them backwards, inside out. You can... Repeat these page on your head. You have to know them. Because what happens is, you've got an actor coming in and you go, uh, would you mind reading? No, I don't mind reading at all. Right. Okay, well, we'd like to hear you. Anyway, I will say, so, uh, you don't see their face. They're absolutely inept. And you have to learn as an actor, if you're auditioning, they want to look at your face, not see the pages. <laughs> and then you get actors... So many actors would come in and go, I'm sorry, I'm dyslexic. So, you know, I don't read very well. And I said, well, would you like to go away and learn it and then come back in and do it? Oh, all right, yeah. Because they can't, I'm dyslexic, so they can't con me. And it was over and over again. And that's how, in casting, it's so wonderful. When Anne Mitchell came in Mm. to do, to read... For Dolly Rawlings, she terrified us. Absolutely <laughs> terrified. The director was so pressed back in his chair, he was terrified. And she said, this is my part, understand? I've waited all my life for this part and I'm having it. You can't cast anybody else. You understand me? It's mine. Bang. And after she read, which was brilliant, and I said to the director, what do you think? And he said, she terrified me. And I said, well, that's Dolly. You give it to her. You have to give it to her. And sometimes I've had an actor come in completely wrong for the part, but he's been so good, I've rewritten the part for them. 
you know, over and over again, I love casting just as much as I love writing, actually, because I see all the characters. I talk yeah. them through. And yeah. Buried has been on the top ten list for now six weeks, seven weeks. You see, it was worth the wait to do it twice so we yes. could get that stat in. So um, just tell us about the writing process for Buried because I know you had a cataract operation yeah. that didn't exactly go to plan. So we just got a taste of you there yeah. acting some of it out and that was key to, to getting Buried created, correct? I literally... Well, I mean, I always do so much homework before I start a book. So I've always got the plot. Um, and I can always tell, you know, I pick up any new thriller or murder mystery and I'm invariably throwing them across the room because I, A, can, you know, get the plot too quickly. Or you <laughs> often find when you're reading a book, you're, they're doing really well, really good story, it's going, it's going. And it's like the writer gets to three quarters of the way through and then goes, oh, I've got to finish it, I've got to finish it. Uh, and then they introduce some ridiculous... Some, the killer is somebody absolutely farcical. That's when I hurl the book across. The, but uh, for Buried, I knew where I had to go and how to get there, um, which is the way I've always worked. You know, I've done interviews and interviews and interviews and studied with the um, forensic department, with the burn department, everything. And so then I had this situation with my eyes which was, well, I was virtually blind. Mm. Um, and I couldn't use the computer. And so I had to do it vocally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a bit like Barbara Cartler, you know, the fuck out of the champagne. Uh, but <laughs> this realisation of how much I acted through every role. Mm -hmm. And um, I was dependent on exceedingly fast typists. <laughs> Mm -hmm. who was sort of so shocked, particularly when you come out with a bit of bad language. Yes. Uh, and they go, do you want that in? Yes, yes, that's it, that's <laughs> in. Uh, and also, you know, I get so emotional, but I'm, I'm there and every single character, it was 20 times more difficult than writing on the keyboard because the amount of concentration it took to get those characters moving... And um, then you have to read it back. And I keep saying, read that line, that line's not right. No, 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 don't like that line, no. And you have these poor, they kind of like rabbits caught in their head, like they'd be poised with their hands up going, yes, 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 no, 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 cut that, cut that, cut that. <laughs> and then I was off again. Um, and I did find it exhausting because... Uh, by the end of the day, you know, I was on my knees. Uh, mm. It was a long journey. And also... And how were you doing Jack War then? What, what, who, did you have someone in mind? Yeah. Did you have an image of... Yeah. Yeah. I always knew who he was. And the actor, too. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to tell us now. <laughs> no, I can't tell you now. <laughs> but listen we, to uh, the audio explain, and we? you have a clue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should explain that uh, when we did this first time round, you did let it slip to us, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't know yet. And, I mean, also, we're just waiting until this is, you know, this Covis, whatever it is, is blown over, hopefully. Mm. Um, yeah. Because for me, 
It's the way I always live. You know, I work for hours by myself, isolated. And I have actually started typing again and working on the computer again. Uh, as I said, you know, I'm churning the books out now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not bothered by anybody, apart from my son. Uh, but I'm not bothered. And so I'm here. I have a lovely garden. I'm very fortunate. My heart breaks for those families that are stuck in a high-rise apartment mm-hmm. and some without a balcony. And this this virus is like a terrifying onslaught. Um <laughs> At the same time, you go to some of... Because when I go shopping, I have gloves, mm-hmm. mask, and you're then at a till, and you've got a lady at the till who's going, uh, 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 do you want to... Da, da, da. I go, pop. So in the end, you know, you're going, <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> oh, and then you've got to pay by card and not cash. And, Linda, when you come to write your next book, will you try and ignore this whole situation? Will you just not yeah. set anything in 2020? The danger of actually drawing it, bringing it in, is that hopefully when the next book is ready to go, I mean, and I have three, (laughs) three lined up, when they're ready to go, it will, I hope to God, be over. And everybody that's written about it will have been written about it and done it. Because of that time gap between each book, I don't think you need to go through it. Um, you just keep keep moving onwards. Do you mind me asking, what are the three that you've got ready to go? Well, I have a new Tennyson. Yes! She's coming in. And that is, uh, is uh, a really bloodthirsty one. <laughs> That's, I'm just trying to remember the title. It's escaped my brain at the moment. Blunt Force. Blunt right. Force. And it's um, exceedingly theatrical. Um, I had a ball doing it. And I... what ha- It's very interesting, or maybe not to most people, but interesting to me. I will pick up <laughs> something. I'll read something. I go, my God. And I just happen to be reading through something. Because I do get sent an awful lot of murder books. And... Um, you know, serial killers. Everybody seems to think, oh, she'll want the serial killer. So I got, do have stacks of murder things, and I'm flipping through one of the worst murders in the past ten years. And there was this very, very famous agent, literary agent. Horror, horror, horror murder. And I thought, ooh, that's very interesting. And so I sort of went... <laughs> and reworked. I mean, it isn't his murder, but Mm. similarities. It's a very, very brutal murder. But what I enjoy doing is going into the theatrical world. You know, and the police are actually told, listen, they're all actors. (laughs) (laughs) They'll lie through their teeth. Don't trust a lot of them. Agents, they'll all lie to you. Because usually, if you think, and all the crime books that you read, they are not usually focusing on a class of people that, um, no, I don't want to make a statement, you know, no, why should I? No, I'm busy. You know, you don't get that. You don't get that supersonic intellectual or famous person. You always get rather, you know, middle class, low class, criminality, 
And so I just wanted to show police procedure in how to handle very famous people. And so um, I've had a ball doing that. Blunt <laughs> force. So, there's a, a, so a blunt force, Tennyson's next, and then what's after that? Another Tennyson. Brilliant. <laughs> so they're, they're backing up. And then I've got the one after um, uh, Buried. Blunt force is out in August. Blunt right, force, got August. Got you. Then next got year out comes the other one. I don't know if I can... I'm sure I can tell you the title of the next one from Buried. Oh, go on. Because it's a fantastic yeah, title. This is the next Jack War. Yeah, it's called Judas Horse. Ooh. Do Judas you know Horse. what a Judas Horse is? No, go on. Do you know that? No, I, I can have a guess, but only because of... Have a guess? Yeah. Well, there's obviously some kind of betrayal. Yeah. But is it like a sort of Trojan horse type thing? No. So it's like a... Okay. okay. A Mustang, the Mustangs, the wild Mustangs, um, are quite... Uh, the herd is usually led by a big stallion. Uh, and they're very hard to split up, break up, capture, rope, they're called. But the ranchers have found out that when they go for the stallion, and now it's not like in the old cowboy days when they're on horseback as well they're using jeeps and motorbikes but they'll segregate the lead mustang take him into the ranch back into the ranch and train him not tame him train him and it takes a considerable amount of time and then eventually when they're ready they'll take him back into the herd and he is trained to draw the herd right back to the ranch and he's Judas horse and it's such a wonderful expression that I was told and ever since I thought I have to use that and so I use it in this horrendous amount of robberies and an informant you know if you have an informant in in crime a super grass or a grass they are a Judas and so this is leading one informant to go back in and draw these killers out. Oh, it's so good. I can't <laughs> tell you. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Flies you, you, off you the page, darling. Flies off it, the page. <laughs> it does. Well, just to keep you in that frame of mind then, Linda, um, I know, uh, again, when we spoke to you the first time round, you had a lot of praise for Michael Connolly. Yeah, uh, I love him. fellow peer, um, and uh, we're very appreciative of the amount of research that he does and his characters. And yeah. now, because we get to do this a second time, we've actually spoken to Michael Connolly, and uh, I'm going to play you what he had to say about you. Oh, so, <laughs> so here's Don't know what I've never met her. <laughs> no, not at all. Here we go. I've met her a few times, and I've. I'm a big fan of her as well, and the TV shows and so forth that have come from her work. And uh, so I really appreciate hearing something like that. But she's right, and then it's what she does too. Um, you know, it's about all the, all the police stuff, all the procedure, all that is really important. But at, at the end of the day, it's window dressing on on character. Um, you know, the realtors always say location, location, location. I think writers should say character, 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 and that's really what connects you with readers. Um, it's not really the uh, you know, where the clues are found or, or overlooked and all that kind of stuff. It's really the character. So there you oh, go. How flattering, because he really is, you know, number one for me. 
what a writer. And yeah, me his too. dedication to the police work um, is brilliant. His character, Bosch, you just love him. <laughs> yeah. I've watched the TV series, I've read all the books. Brilliant, brilliant. And a great guy, too, I think. It's nice to know that he is mutual. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll mention the marriage proposal next time, but I believe he is already taken. Okay, oh well, oh, never mind. They all are, aren't they, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, I was asked recently by a journalist, so, so how about your love life? I said, well, there isn't one, really. Oh, no. I, I, and they've always read some, back some ancient article where I was with somebody, and I said, no, I own the TV remote, and what is it? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> They always want to know your business, your private business. Yeah, I, I imagine that you can uh, you can close those conversations quite quickly if you want to, though, Linda. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Having said that, we don't want to pry into your personal life, but your son, is he 17 now? Yeah, he's 16. He'll be 17 in July. I'm curious if he's read your books or if you get his feedback on, on stuff oh, while no, you're no, writing. No, he never reads anything, no. <laughs> Not interested at all, no. Yet still, he can fix a computer. No. He's just an absolute computer literate. He does everything. I am absolutely the most inept person you've ever come across. Trying to send a file will get me into a kind of nervous, neurotic state. Because every time I get a new laptop or I get a new computer, they've all changed all the keys. I don't know where they are. And he mm -hmm. just comes... Blah, 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 blah. He's fixed up my phone for this, everything. And I just kind of sit there like an idiot. Um, but that, no, he's been, he's got 3D printers. He's been making all the health masks for the hospitals on his oh. 3D printer. Wow. And I, it's very clever, but totally no, no, not, no interest at all. <laughs> I think he finds it rather embarrassing. <laughs> like any parent then, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm an embarrassment. <laughs> Linda, Linda, let me ask you to um, tell us about how you were able to write accurately about a prison siege because this story just blew our socks off when we did this first time and so I hope you don't mind repeating yourself but it's such an amazing story Which one? You mean, oh, on the um, trying to get somebody out of a prison cell? Yeah, and, and the person that phoned you to tell you the truth Well, um, I was, wrote the TV series called The Governor about a female governor, and I wanted to do um, an episode in it where um, a prisoner took hostage uh, a governor, an officer. He took a, 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 an officer hostage. And so I went to the Department of um, Prisons to discuss hostage negotiation. And they were exceedingly helpful. They showed me the prison cells, how complicated they are now to open the doors, that, you know, bursting open the doors, there's nothing in the cell. And it was a very long time ago. I had to drive a long way into Leeds to get all this information. But when it boiled down to me getting the information about hostage negotiation, they suddenly said, no, we can't actually tell you that because, I mean... If you put it in a book, well, it will just, you know, it is very, very private, very, you know, it, it's, it's very, very carefully 
um, here we do not let anybody know about it. And I said, oh, okay. So I was thinking that that wasn't going to work for me um, if I never got the information about hostage negotiation. And um, at the time, one of the, well, he's still the most dangerous prisoners in England. And he was, he's now called Salvadore. But he did change his name to Charlie Branson at one point. Uh, he's extraordinary. He's, he is very, very violent. Um, and he's been in prison. I think he's the longest serving prisoner in England. Anyway, he and I had a relationship for a very long time. And I used to send him crayons and paper to do his cartoons. He's a brilliant cartoonist. And he would call sometimes. Hello. It's Charlie. I say, hello, Charlie. Very inferior crayons, Miss Laplante. Uh, I only like the best. And if you could send me some quality paper. And this would go on. And um, so he'd say, well, what are you doing now? What are you up to? And uh, I said, oh, I'm writing about a hostage negotiation in a prison. Oh, yes. I said, uh, well, I'm not getting much luck, actually. Um, in uncovering hostage negotiation. So he says, so, would you like my tapes? I said, I beg your pardon? He said, would you like my tapes? I've got my tapes from when I took a prison officer hostage and held him in my cell. I said, and you have it taped? He said, yeah, well, when I come out, I went on trial for keeping the officer hostage. And my lawyers, you know... They're all taped. I said, well, I would really appreciate that. Thank you very much, Charlie. He said, that's all right. I'll get my lawyer to send it. So the deal was done. And his lawyers sent me the tapes. And whatever I was expecting, whatever anybody else is expecting from hostage negotiation, in reality, it is bore them out of the cell. Um... And so I listened to this for hours too. Hello, Charlie, what you having for breakfast? Uh, um, just a scrambled egg, a soup, bacon, a bit of bacon, cup of tea. Oh, you have a cup of tea with it, not coffee. Oh, that's nice. Uh, do you like your eggs scrambled with runny or bacon crispy? How do you like your bacon, Charlie? Well, I like it quite crispy, really. This could go on all day. On and on. What did you have for lunch? Did you think of it? Have you... How's everything going in there? Until eventually, he, he said, oh, I'll give up. I, I'm on out. Let me out. Um, <laughs> there's two sides to that, actually. There's two... Part of it is, you know, a very amusing because he wanted to get um, a blow-up rubber doll, 30,000 and a helicopter or he would not release the prison officer. Anyway, after this lengthy hostage negotiation, he did release the hostage and went on trial for it, got further years. But the hostage, the prison officer, has never recovered. All these years later, he lived in terror. And so he all, all those conversations of boring negotiation... You know, if you'd like another sandwich for tea, I, I can organise that. But you've got to do something for us, Charlie, you know. You can't just ex have extra sandwiches. All that. Meanwhile, there was one man, terror struck. 
And uh, so there is that lever always. When you get to, for me, that is what research is all about. You gain two stories there. How, I mean, even talking at one time to Charlie's father, who told me, um, oh, he's such a stupid, isn't he? You know, he's stupid because he was only went in for five years. And uh, anyway, he come out and um, he was going to rob a NatWest bank and he had a balaclava and a shotgun, but he didn't know what time the bank's open, so they found him on the steps of the bank, you see, arrested him before they opened. That's why he's <laughs> stupid. <laughs> so, you see, you hear that and then you realise Charlie Bronson has been in prison for the longest-serving prisoner, 35, 36 years. He's always ostracised. He is never allowed on a mixed um, ward, wing. He can't go on a, a proper wing. He's always in solitary. He is a great artist, a great poet. And then there is that side. He changes his appearance, too. Sometimes, I mean, he'll have a huge, huge beard. And other times he will be clean-shaven. And he is an extraordinary character that can combust within a fraction of a second from being amicable, um, pleasant. He can just turn. And he is And how do you dangerous. feel about people like these, like these types of dangerous people helping you and having your number and, you know, entering your life? I know they're useful to you, but have you ever felt threatened by any of them? No, because he's still in prison. <laughs> He is, yeah. <laughs> no, no, well, you don't, you... because you take protection. I, I'm not stupid. I do take security measures for everything, always. Um, and, you know, the most important thing for me is respect. Uh, I respect them, and they have to respect me. And I think that point of respect, it goes with the police, pathology, forensic, whatever. If they give me their time, I respect them. I respected Charlie because he gave me his time. One time when he insulted me, I, I gave him a warning and said, you never, ever are allowed to call my office again. I can't remember if I told you last night, it was Alice, who used to work for me, who was very posh, and Alice took the call, and he had a complaint about his crayons again. And... Um, she said he would like a new set of crayons sent and, if possible, a pair of her knickers, but used. Mm -hmm. So she came in in hysterics to me and said, oh, he's just done it. I said, you go back on the phone and say, we don't receive any more calls. That's not a threat. That was a warning to him to actually show respect when he spoke to anybody in my office. And he is very respectful um, now and his letters, um, but the waste of his life. Um, mm. And I think, over and over again, they make a movie of his life. You know, Charlie Bronson's a big movie. Um, mm -hmm. He's like a hero. But it's the Cray brothers. You know, I knew the Cray brothers. Heroes? They lost 38 years of their lives. And if you actually then say to them, what do you think about that? They will actually alter and say, I lost half my life. You know, if, if you want to glorify a criminal, you pay the ultimate price. You lose half your life. 
Yeah, and obviously there's the countless people that they've hurt and yeah. and affected along the way, as you were saying. I think one of the things I've always liked about your writing as well, especially Linda, is I think Phil is more of a prolific crime reader than I am. I kind of have phases where I dip in and out. And what always puts me off, some crime books, not yours, is when there is so much about trying to get into the psychology of the killer in such gruesome detail that I, I actually don't want to know that. I, I don't want to... Yeah, because the difference is my interest is the puzzle to catch them, the mm-hmm. clues. I don't want to know the psychopath. I don't want to know the child, the paedophile. I don't want to know them. They, it's. I won't go that route, actually, because I find crime against children is um, one of the worst things to deal with emotionally if you're writing. I can't do it. I find do you know what? Since I became a father, Linda, I can't read anything like that now. I get sent so much about a child goes missing and I just can't even read it. Yeah. And, you know, some of the programmes, they're documentaries now about missing. And you think, two seconds, you t- turn away and your child's gone. Uh, and it's over and over again. So I, I don't go there because I've do. I've only done it once in a trial and retribution and I found it very disturbing, very, very disturbing to do, mm-hmm. to write. Um, but the ga- to me, the game commences when you pick up a crime book. The game commences, right, entertain me. Mm-hmm. Are we going to go? Do I know who did it? Um, and, you know, I remember once in a, an elevator with my then <laughs> agent, a prime <laughs> suspect... Now, he'd done the negotiations for the contract, which, you know, to this day are really not worth the toilet paper that they were written on. Uh, anyway, he was my agent and done deal, prime suspect. It was all very exciting. And he said, I'd love to watch it with you. So I said, OK, if you want to. Mm-hmm. So agent sits next to me and he goes, I think I know who did it. I said, oh, really? <laughs> He said, yes. Is it that guy in the elevator? And I said, no. I mean, he'd never read it. He'd never read. And there he was telling, oh, this wonderful series, this wonderful script. Never read it. The guy in the elevator, is that, is, that, is that who did it? That's agents for you. They don't read it, you know. <laughs> oh, rubbish to it. <laughs> That's so why you... blunt force is such a good... Yeah. So you, I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to kind of pry, but so it sounds like you've learned quite a lot about contracts then <laughs> since that initial time. One of the biggest advice to any writer is do not sign anything without legal representation. You will be ripped off, torn apart and sold down the river. I have been ripped off, sold down the river so many times, you know, nobody can really believe it. And, you know, I'm often forbidden to actually tell the truth too. You know, I have to be very protective. I mean, who I'm protecting, I don't know. Probably me. But, mm-hmm. you know, you can't badmouth this. And, you know, it's very hard for people to actually really truthfully believe that for this huge film of Widows, I got paid a bouquet of flowers because well, I didn't it. own anything. You didn't own the stories? I didn't own it. Whatever I did, whatever notes I gave, whatever I suggest, whatever I did, I got a bouquet of flowers. But I'm not allowed to ever say that 
because, you know, everybody else can say, oh, yeah, but you brought out widows' books. You know, they were successful on the back of the film. So I just have to shut up and go, yes, somewhere my contracts from my past would break your heart. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... And that part of it... So every young writer, I say, look at your contracts. Look at your contracts. Do not... so Because in the days of Prime Suspect, in the days of, you know, widows and things, your contracts had nothing about uh, anything that we have now, videos, DVDs. They had nothing like that. Mm. Mm. You just lose the whole mass of income. Gone. Um... You're sold everything. At the bottom, at the end of my contract with my literary agent was a little line. I don't know. Oh, this, we just sign this to protect you. You know, look, really look after you. Little line. They own 20% of my books when I'm dead and buried in perpetuity. And you think, my son, that's his inheritance. They're there mm-hmm. with their claws out. And I think the world that we live in now, because there is so much product and we are so naive writers and actors, you know, you have actors whose TV series are doing round and going out and churning and churning and they're being paid $5 an episode. It's, you know, because those contracts in those days, now you understand why in L.A., you know, They've got managers, contract people, lawyers. And, you know, they cost so much money, an arm and a leg, you know, to a lawyer. If you have a phone call, you're looking at, you know, 5000 for a five-second phone call just to iron out something in a contract. And, you know, so you learn by very hard slaps across the wrist. And I have learned, you know. But at the same time, I am very, very thankful for what I have, too. You know, I have great people looking after me now. Nice. And on that, um, I know that you're understandably very protective of the characters and, and what you want them to go and do out in the world. Um, what's it like when you go to some of those meetings or have whether you have meetings on Zoom now with people who want to develop characters for film or TV in the future? How do you take those meetings? Well, you just, I mean, you, you just laugh, really. You have to laugh because, you know, pitching in LA um, a series called Cold Shoulder, which was a trilogy of books, um, and, you know, everything is streaming now. You want to know... Mm your character, what, if your character is an incredibly beautiful woman of 30, they want to know what she's going to be doing when she's 60. You know, it's farcical. Mm-hmm. You know, they, dist- you know, they stretch everything out. It's so boring. So, you know, pitching in L.A. is, you know, you're half the time you're pitching to infants. And you really <laughs> just want to say, excuse me, what have you done? Have you ever done any work? <laughs> You know, particularly in one case, the girl had pigtails. And, you know, they go series one, season one, season two, season three, season four, season five. And so this pigtail... And I was with the most wonderful writer, producer, Tom Fontana, 
and he and I are lethal together. But he and I were working on the series. And I just about had my fill that day from the pigtails. When she said, so, Linda, how do you see the fifth season? Where is Lorraine Page in the fifth season, Linda? I said, ah, well, she's lost a leg. And at that point, Tom Fantano said, we're just leaving. <laughs> I had, honestly. But you know what I find really interesting about that, what you just said, Linda, is that uh, it seems a little short-sighted on behalf of those people you're doing the meetings with because, actually, if you look at, say, Widows for You and Jane Tennyson, you've, they've both had rebirths by allowing you to kind of either visit them again or, to, in the case of Tennyson, to pre-visit and to go early life. So you don't need to go five series ahead, do you? Because actually there's more invention in what you've done, I would argue. Yeah, you could go backwards. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, now it is really quite astonishing what they're up to. Um, and, I mean, this is why most of it is so boring. Best things are the real-life documentaries. You know, they're, they're the best things on TV. And people keep saying, oh, who your favourite author? Who, what, what do you watch? You know, can you imagine, um, I mean, sitting, if you were afternoon TV, okay, everywhere now in lockdown, afternoon TV, mm. it's like wall-to-wall cooking programmes, mm-hmm. wall-to-wall people eating, wall-to-wall people going, oh, I like, mm, this is very good. Then you go up to half past six and by God, they've now got chefs doing it. They've now got all these competitions where more people and they're doing this. The the elimination of each chef and you think, oh, get off. I am so (laughs) bored with cooking programmes. They drive me to distraction. Or in the afternoon, you've got a repeat of Midsummer Murders. And, you know, you're three quarters of the way through the repeat. You think, oh, I've seen this before. Oh, yes, I think I've seen it twice. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is what we've come to. It is. Do you know I what? I've never like understood with Midsummer though. murders. I've never understood why there's so many murders in Midsummer when the local copper is Bergerac. Oh, um, he obviously... <laughs> <laughs> they go, it's Bergerac on duty, OK. Boom, 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 boom. It's... It's just, you see, they're so tame, and, except they're getting less... Team, there's quite a lot of bloodbaths going. Pity like I don't know. I, I just this obsession with people eating. You know, I want to do a comedy show where you see the judges, and they've got them in Australia. You know, running around like lunatics, twenty cooking on. I just want to watch judges getting fatter, and fatter, and then blowing up. <laughs> <laughs> I think that does happen in some of those series as well. You can see the progression. Yeah, where they um, bloat. Think... <laughs> yeah, bloating. They bloat up and look ridiculous. Yeah. Oh. But I think I think you are talking about Master Chef Australia there, which I do kind of like. <laughs> I know, we've got Master. We've got Master Chef. Here, we've got Master Chef for two year olds. Here, we've got Master Chef in everything you can think of. You know, you know, cooking in the tent, and people getting hysterical. Bake Off. That's another one. Bake Off. Oh my God. You know, I can't, I can't stand them. And it's every single channel. And then you, if you haven't got that, you've got come dine with me. These people entertaining people they don't know to dinner and then going, oh, I didn't like your 
pudding very much. You go, oh, <laughs> no, just stick. I get the sense you're storing it all up though, and it's going to come out in a in a book somewhere, Linda. Yeah, the murder. That'll be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Chef's Blunt murder. trifle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sharp knife. I'll do that. Just to bring it back to writing for a little bit, because I, I know our time's up soon. Um, I did want to mention as well how what I also really enjoy about your writing, and I think this comes across from anybody who's probably ever had a conversation with you, is that you do things very much your way. And uh, I noticed when I was reading Buried that, not that I know there are any particular rules and conventions about how people write, but you sometimes will have a long a long passage and then you'll follow it up with just a really couple of words of short dialogue then you'll switch a point of view then you'll have you know a, a chapter that's a few pages long then you'll have one that's tiny and I kind of love that because it it keeps you on your toes as a reader but also you know I think sometimes a lot of my work has humor in it mm-hmm. and there's a lot of humor there because in real life there is I mean it's you know, yeah. Everything is you and it's awful. We are all in this terrible situation of this horrendous virus and people trolling out with masks on, gloves on, and then they're at home and what have they got to watch? All these people cooking and eating. And you were to say it's like what it's very, very hard. I am in the dodgy group. Mm-hmm. Very dodgy group at my age. So I don't go out at all. And now I just watch documentaries, have a gin and tonic, and write another book. <laughs> well, it's amazing, though, isn't it? Because you've got three more to come. I think the turnaround speed is so prolific. Are you, do you remember last time, Linda, we asked you for some recommendations for other books? Do you remember what they are so you can give us those again? Yes, I love uh, Sphinx by Hugo Vickers. It's absolutely wonderful. And there is another book... Um, this, I don't know if you know who Samuel Fuller is. He was an American director called The Third Face. He's uh, an astonishing director. And it's now during this time when people, I don't know if you've got the, um, you know, everybody's in Australia as much as we are hemmed in at home here. But he is a master. If people want to get great movies out, particularly get The White Dog. Sam Fuller, brilliant, brilliant director. Um, mad as a hatter. I mean, he was, you know, a GI, smoked cigars, used to shoot up guns on the set. But absolutely a fascinating thing. And another wonderful read is Raymond Chandler's... Um, Raymond Chandler's Letters. Oh, my goodness, will you have a laugh? It really is. He never, ever got a bad review without him answering the bad review with an abusive, disgusting letter. The letters really do make you laugh. I keep the book all over the place because sometimes I just pick it up to have a little read and a laugh. But that's Raymond Chandler, one of the best crime writers. And there Mm. you see, as a crime writer, Matt, was he brilliant. You know, his descriptions of characters in two or three lines. I envy all his titles, too. What a writer. Wonderful man. Loved him. Do you ever, do you ever follow his lead and do you ever write to people who say mean things about you or, or give you a bad review of a book? No, but I, I hate them. 
<laughs> and she calls Charlie Bronson and he takes care yeah, of it. Yeah. But, you know, you do find sometimes you find a very nasty review, some envious writer, mm-hmm. and that's always the one on Amazon that comes up first. And you think, why? Who is this? But, no, I'm very fortunate. You know, I'm very happy. And, and I've got a great set of fans that, I mean, keep me going all the time. Great letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is it's a big plus. Because truthfully, if I didn't have that warm regard from fans, um, then I wouldn't bother writing anymore. Linda, thanks so much for doing this with us again and being so generous. I just wanted to say a big thank you as well because I know that you write incredible characters but my first introduction to the great I consider Dolly Rawlins was creeping downstairs when I was far too young um, and my mum would be watching Widows in the early 80s uh, and kind of sneaking in in the doorway and just kind of watching it and I was transfixed and I kind of think she knew she knew I was talking to her about this the other day and she she sort of knew I was there, but she was in that zone of like, I just need my time. I've put the kids to bed. This is my zone. And uh, and kind of knew that it would probably be all right in the long run, which of course it was. That first series just imprinted on my brain so much. And I just think it's remarkable to have created a character that's got that kind of longevity and fantastic that she, you know, is still living and breathing and, and part of Berry. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, how nice. Thank you so much, too. I've loved talking to you, anyway. Okay, so we did actually record that one, right? Yeah, we've tested that. We've just rolled back. (laughs) That's there. That worked. I mean... How was your stomach during that? Were you like, I kept checking my recording way more than I normally do because I was like, oh, my word, I cannot mess this up again. I know, I know, I know. I know. It's horrible, isn't it? It's such a horrible feeling, especially when it's not your fault, we should say. Do you know what I mean? Mm. If I'd pressed delete on yeah. it, I think I'd feel better, actually. You know what I mean? I think I'd go, OK, hands up. I did that. What an idiot. But when it disappears into someone's cloud, I mean, we don't want to name any brands, but Fat Larry's band will lead you there. Um, <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> you won't now. <laughs> Every time you hear it, you'll think of Linda LaFant <laughs> and the lost tapes that were never were. But her Charles <laughs> Bronson story bowls me over. I just think it's fantastic. The way she does all the voices. Um, and also, how prolific is she? Yeah. You know, we're speaking to her at the end of May. There's another Jane Tennyson coming in August and then two more books next year. I mean, that's... You know, Michael Connolly said, didn't he, that he struggled when it's his two-a-year year and he only has done three mm-hmm. in his whole career. Yeah. It's just remarkable. And also, we were just chatting briefly at the end there and uh, in a kind of writerly way, I was... Because, you know, people have methods about, you know, I get up at five and I do my three hours of writing or whatever mm. it might be. And she's like, no, I just write whenever whenever it works, really, whenever I can. Yeah, but so also, I think she when she works told really you hard. about um, dictating buried because of her eyesight, mm. she couldn't type, I thought also, that's that's a woman who's got a complete mental grasp of the story, even of the dialogue, yeah. of the characters. You know, when she said that bit where she said, no, that line's not right, and the poor typist has to go back as if it's the typist's fault. But she's clearly, mm-hmm. I think, got a huge brain or a huge imagination or something. It's almost like a, a landscape in her mind, isn't it, where she, she's got it all mapped out and she knows exactly what should be where, which again yeah. to me is right. But even that, where she says, in terms of research, when she goes and speaks to you know police officers mm. and anybody she's 
talking to you to, that's going to weave into her books the fact that she doesn't take any notes yeah. or any recording when she's doing that and then just go home, goes home and, and does a download from her brain I mean I've had to do that sometimes when I've done you know interviewing and, and, and it is terrifying and there are always bits where you're like well for me anyway there are always bits where I'm like oh they said something but, uh, but also there's remember. that thing with the mind isn't there you'll know this from interviewing pop stars where you know if you speak to Nolan Liam for example about something that's really well documented say Nebworth not together yeah they will have <laughs> a, a completely different recollection of Nebworth, but they'll both yeah. tell you it's the truth. I can hear people listening to this and well, that's because they're off their nuts. So, yeah, maybe a bad example. But <laughs> do you know what I mean? If you asked me and you about the time we worked together in 1999, we'd have different versions of the same You wish. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what must have aged you as much as it's aged me is this losing this bloody recording. I'll tell you. God, I think I, I think I aged 10 years. That was so gracious of her to uh, to was. do it again. And it was, I just want to let you know, listening, how easy she made that for us. I had to place the phone call through to her publicist and said, look, you know, this recording just isn't there. And within 10 minutes, she'd come back and said, one o'clock tomorrow. And I just was blown away by that. I really was. Because she must get us to do so much. She didn't have to do this. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have to do it no, twice. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, she, she's got a bank of stories and I could listen yeah, to them too. for hours. So it was brilliant. And you were cooing yeah. over yeah. her dog right. afterwards. Yeah, I know. I, I did get a picture of it. So I'll, I'll put a picture of Max the cockapoo <laughs> up somewhere so you can see him as well. But yeah, total charmer. Yeah, love Linda LaPlante, love Dolly Rawlins, um, more Linda. So Buried is out now, as she told you in that part. It's already been up in the top 10 for weeks. And the podcast, if you're interested in that, is called Listening to the Dead. Season one is already up and available for you to get from the same place you got this one. And she confirmed that they're going to do another season. And that's the one where they go into the world of forensics and explore exactly who does what and what makes sense scientifically and forensically so they can incorporate it into Linda's stories. Isn't it interesting as well, though, that Michael Connolly has one yeah, like that yeah. and Linda LaPlante has one? Yeah. I kind of want their worlds to merge yeah. <laughs> at some point. <laughs> well, they've merged on bestsellers, and that's as good as we can do for Duh. you at the time being. Um, <laughs> and there is, we should say, there are three episodes now available for you to grab. So Linda's episode two, you'll find Michael Connolly, and you should listen to David Nichols as well for Sweet Sorrow. He created One Day and was a Cold Feet writer, and he's just superb as well. So there's three of these episodes to get your ears around whilst we go off and churn up some more for you.